Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is part two of our conversation with Emily Maguire. If you haven't listened to part one already, I'd recommend you go back and start there. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I am recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respect to their ongoing connections to their lands. Sovereignty was never exceeded in Australia. This is stolen land and treaty was never made. Now, Emily Maguire, who's featuring on today's show, is the author of six novels and three non-fiction books. She's been nominated for the Stella Prize and Miles Franklin, and has been published widely in journals and papers across Australia. Today, we're discussing her latest novel, Love Objects, and it's part two of that conversation. Now, in Love Objects, we meet a very close-knit family. Nicole has always looked out for family. When her sister Michelle packed up and left Sydney, though, Nick was devastated. She'd always treated her niece Lena like her own daughter, and to be separated was unbearable. When Lena returns to Sydney to study, every Sunday she and Nick meet up for lunch. But one weekend, Nick misses their, their lunch date, and Lena goes in search of her aunt. What she finds changes everything, and Lena's going to have to confront the lengths that she'll go for someone that she loves. In part two of our conversation, Emily and I explore more of this incredible family dynamic, and we look at the larger societal pressures that compel people to to make judgments and think a little bit about how we live. Join me as we discover Emily Maguire's Love Objects. Uh, this real cognitive dissonance that growing up as a as a girl or as a straight girl woman in this society, you are supposed to simultaneously hold this idea in your head that men are the potential partners and you know sources of hopefully mutual pleasure and and all the rest of it, but also they're dangerous beasts that you should be afraid of, and you're not allowed to say that at all. It's very offensive to group all men in together, and who would do that? But if you are assaulted or something happens, there is this reaction, didn't you know that men are dangerous beasts and you should have been more careful? Mm. It's, it's tough. Let's flip the lens then because I think in my questions I'm, I'm falling into a way of thinking that so much of this discussion has where we, we talk about what the woman's situation is in these cultural narratives and Far too infrequently uh, is the lens turned on masculinity. I mean, there are there are hugely notable exceptions, um, such as uh, you know last last year's Stella Prize winning "See What You Made Me Do." But in in your book, you do this brilliantly as well. And and in Will, we get some really interesting discussions around masculinity, particularly at one point. Will asks himself a really interesting question about his dad. He's, he tries to figure out how did he know how to be a good man? It's a question that Will's oh. struggling with himself as his life seems to be kind of falling apart. It's a question we're struggling with as a society. You know, we, we get these kind of platitudes around cultural change, but nobody seems to know what, the, what are the steps that move towards this far off. Um... Anyway, most men aren't like Will, though. They don't seem to be asking the question, and I, I wondered... <laughs> I wondered, I think you might be onto something here, that this might be the first step, that when we stop assuming that just existing as a man is enough, 
and we start to ask how our being, our, our you know, being whoever we are, whatever version of masculinity we subscribe to, how our being impacts others. I just that was such a powerful moment for me. Mm, um, yeah, it's something you know because I've sort of written about and thought and spoken a lot about feminism over the last well, decade and a half or whatever. Something that has become really clear to me is that although there's obviously still a lot of work to be done and we're not there yet, but, you know, we wouldn't be having these conversations if we were. But but one thing that's an extraordinary success, I think, of the feminist movement, the women's movement, and in more recent years, actually, um, the work of trans activists and trans people is this questioning of what does it even mean to be a to be a good woman or an ideal woman or an ideal wife in the earlier days of the movement. These kind of questions that have really freed up girls and women um, to to just be. And, of course, those pressures still exist and we all know that. But I think it, it has become more normalised for girls. You know, you see it with even quite young girls and certainly high schoolers to, to really just quite naturally with each other be having conversations about how to live, how to be, and gender is a part of that. Um and I don't think there hasn't been an equivalent kind of mass movement that then has slowly moved down to just be mainstream how we live of, of men really talking about that. I think there, there is this thing that if, if many men, if they think about it at all, it will be in the context of maybe their father or another older male. Do I want to be like him or not like him? Um, and, and this idea of really opening opening things up completely and saying, actually, you've got a blank slate here. There's, there's not anything that says you have to be like anything except who you are. Um, I, I think that's such a long way off. You know, mm. for, for someone like Will, because he's at a crisis point and has, you know, a, another broken relationship that he feels really sad about and his father died when he was quite young, so he, he doesn't have that example to go to. So I think someone, you know, a young man in that, crisis situation who's really would love a bit of guidance would love someone to go listen mate this is this is how you handle this situation and he doesn't have that so his mind does go there but he still you know even though it's lovely he's thinking about that he still can't get that far because what is the answer where where is the conversation about um how to be it's extraordinary i had um like another really kind of bizarre uh, cultural tangential moment today because we we shared one we shared one off air before we began the interview. But um, I was I was listening to a radio station that I wouldn't normally be listening to because I was getting a haircut, and they they had a little bit of a snippet of an interview with uh, Mike Rutherford, who was a songwriter for My, um, Mike and the Mecha- I think I've got his name right for Mike and the Mechanics about the song The Living Years, where he's talking exactly about sort of what we're discussing there, the way men don't seem to be able to create a, a co- even a common vocabulary, let alone begin the dialogues about being men and relating to each other. And he was talking about himself and his father 40, 50 years ago and beyond. And it's a problem that we're, we're still st- seemingly taking baby steps to, um, uh. to announce. And um, yeah, that, that's, I don't. This is the first time Mike and the Mechanics has ever been brought up on my show. <laughs> my mum's going to love this. She, this is that's one of her favourite songs because it makes her think of her dad. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it is. It is extraordinary how we are still baby stepping our way through this conversation, despite as you you know you just discussed the incredible examples that we have around 
thinking about and discussing gender in in so many other areas. Yeah, and I, I do wonder just uh, with you referring to that song, which is now immediately in my head and probably will be for the next week now. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do think, I guess, a, a little beacon of hope in this is that, you know, men of, of my generation and the next one coming up are certainly, you know, to, to generalise, but I think pretty fairly, uh, more involved fathers themselves. So even if they're not comfortable in that language of, um, talking about what kind of man to be or anything like that, I think they are definitely more comfortable with that um, hands-on parenting, with having that close relationship to their sons and daughters. And that, you know, you, you'd have to hope that that is going to have some kind of knock-on effect, even if the conversations are awkward and and uncomfortable and all that kind of stuff, that, that there is more chance of that sort of conversation happening about, well, Dad, why... Why did you decide to live this way and get married or not got married or, or whatever you've done? And, and, and it does, it does feel like that sort of relationship within families anyway is, is a little bit more hopeful than it was a generation or two ago. Yeah. I'm, I'm a huge advocate. I'm a huge fan. I, I felt really challenged by a lot of the stuff that's been going on. And so, you know, decided to reach out to an old friend about, what it was like for us at high school. And we, we had a long chat about that sort of thing, about what we thought we were being brought up as or how we thought we were influenced or not influenced. And it's it's so liberating to to find out that someone thinks like you or to find out that someone reflected on things differently as something that you you weren't sure about. So, I mean, I'd, I, mm. I would... I would highly recommend all men you know reach reach out beyond it doesn't have to just be those father-son relationships extending our circle which is where we we kind of started this conversation i i I also began by saying there is so much we could be discussing so before you know i i i even start to wind this down let's let's jump into a really kind of small topic that barely touches the surface of love objects wealth wealth and class because Mm. i really wanted to think about how money how money influences so much of what we've been discussing and how money might solve problems and open doors in ways other things just can't. Because I, I mentioned before, you know, if, if you were found to have thousands of bottles of wine in your cellar, nobody would suggest that you had a hoarding problem. Even if you were telling stories about every single bottle, how does a lens of wealth and class change the way we look at so many of these topics? Oh, yeah, it's it's huge. I mean, even just on the wine thing, there there are certain wines I'm told that the whole idea is to hoard them mm. and not to drink them. <laughs> you know, that's that's literally the point. And and certainly in Sydney, we have a problem with people. Uh, I would say hoarding property. Um, definitely, there's a lot of people who hoard money and assets. And and yes, there's people who are eccentric collectors who have um, you know, homes that that could be museums. Uh, they, they don't tend to be spoken about as hoarders. Um, one of those things is, is well, one of the reasons is the, the sheer practicality of if you own your own home, um, it will take a much longer time and level of what might be perceived disorder or clutter before anyone is going to interfere with that. Um, if you are a renter or housing commission, then it's a much, you know, that question of when do we interfere with people when, you know, are people entitled to privacy, even if you think they're doing something that might be harmful to themselves. If you are reliant on living in something that is legally someone else's home, 
even if you're paying very high rent for it, um, that that line will be crossed a lot earlier. Mm. Um, the idea that there's something charming about a wealthy person who, you know, has a has quirky interests or who collects lots of things that that is pretty strong in our culture. There there are some really famous um, hoarder stories if you if you start reading the literature of this that are incredibly wealthy people. Probably the the most famous is the Collier brothers, and this is a story that goes back to the 1940s in in Harlem. That these uh, two brothers who were incredibly wealthy from an incredibly wealthy family, and yeah, they had a lot of stuff. In the end, it, it killed both of them in in slightly different ways, but quite close together. Um, and nobody, everybody knew how they were living, but they had really isolated themselves. And and it is sometimes told as quite a quirky, funny story because the stuff that was found in their home afterwards is, you know, there's there's some fascinating things in there, but but actually, it's really a story of social isolation. Um, these two aging men who who didn't have any contact outside of the, their own little circle of two, um, and I think you know again, it's this, it's this flip side. How how great to be wealthy enough that people leave you alone because you own your property and can do what you want, but also um, how much do we leave people alone until they're maybe literally killing themselves, maybe that is the right thing to do. Um, certainly in our culture, stories about people who have a lot of stuff do tend to be very classist and very much focused on this idea that that uh, people somehow have junk or they're messy or they're dirty or all this kind of thing. Um, and it, it, it does feel very, very frustrating because when you really look at the hoarding of assets and the amount of money that, that some people spend on items that are considered very prestigious and great, um, yes, there's a practical difference to having an incredibly cluttered home. It can cause accidents and feel like, you know, a little bit of an unsafe space to move through. That's definitely a real problem and a real concern. Um, but there's a moral judgment that gets put on that that isn't often put on the people with um, massive collections of dusty old bottles of wine that they're never going to drink or other kind of items like that. It's, it's that moral judgment that I, I find really interesting and, and disturbing that often when people do put judgments on um, people they label hoarders, it isn't really about that person's safety or the safety of anyone else. Quite often it's about they're somehow doing something wrong by wanting to keep all that stuff um, and it's crap anyway. It's not stuff that we would value so we can look down on them for it. Yeah. I mean, it struck me as you were talking there that the National Trust, which operates in, in the the UK and in Australia, is is just a, it's an institution that enshrines people who were rich enough and owned enough property and hoarded their stuff. And it, 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 t- it turns their houses into museums, but you have to be of a certain mm-hmm. status. I mean, wealth plays out in so many ways in love objects as well. I mean, even Will, who has had a a series of of life stories that I'm not going to I want people to discover but he confronts the things that you know even basic even basic medical care or dental care is inaccessible if you if you don't have a certain amount of life stability and and wealth and and then he gets you get coded as being a certain type of person there's a particularly I think sort of galling situation on a bus where, of course, nobody knows what's going on inside Will's head, but he's he's being coded as a particular type of person because he can't afford a particular level of care. 
Mm. Yeah, and it is it is something that's really frustrating. Um, I think for for people who maybe have never been um, on the poverty line or even really really broke, um, maybe they don't realise how it becomes a full time job to <laughs> to just get through the day and get things paid. And if something goes wrong, like you have a toothache or something some other condition that's not covered by Medicare or you're not in an area where there's Medicare accessible doctors practice or whatever, it it just derails everything. I mean, no one wants to have a toothache. It, it sucks and it's equally painful for everyone, I suppose. But it, there's no easy solution for that problem if you don't have the money to, to pay for emergency dental care or quick dental care. And it, it it's the kind of pain that it just becomes your life. And... It's so easily fixed in terms of if there was money for it. And there's a lot of problems like that, that when you're in that situation, I, it, it really does become so much of your mental space is taken up by just figuring out how you're going to pay for stuff. And if that was just paid for, who knows? There's so many people that their creativity and their maybe generosity to others in active service or their work they could be doing and who knows this untapped potential of so many people who, if they just didn't have to be thinking so much of the time about how to pay for stuff, um, you know, it, it, it could be incredible untapped resources there. Well, we've learned so much in the last 12 months about uh, the the levers that need to be pulled to, to make mm. social services available for everyone mm-hmm. and... I think you're absolutely right. We need to think about one, what we value and how we value living in a world where everyone has that access. Um, Emily, look, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm speaking with Emily Maguire and we're discussing her new novel, Love Objects. I, I thought a really beautiful way that we might close out the interview, Emily, is to acknowledge, like help people discover this book. It has the most gorgeous floral red cover and this cover, it seems to perfectly encapsulate Nick's life for me, how she can be absorbed by her things but in a beautiful way. Is there anything you can tell me about this incredible cover art? Oh, I feel so lucky to have this cover. Um, it was designed by the incredible book designer Sandy Cull, but Sandy actually managed to find an existing work of art and that's what is now um, reproduced on the cover. It's by an artist uh, called Cecilia Perides. And she she is the figure that you, you can find in that cover, the artist herself. She, she paints herself into these backgrounds. And, yeah, you're right. It was immediately just so perfect when I saw it because it is, it is cluttered. It's a cluttered cover in terms of the actual representation on it. But to me, it really shows how, how Nick feels walking into her home or, or within her stuff that – it's not only beautiful clutter, but it, it is very much part of her. And I kind of imagine if that figure on the cover would step away from that background, how suddenly odd and naked and exposed she would look. And, and you know, that to me is so representative of, of how Nick feels um, if she doesn't have her things. It is such a gorgeous cover. Uh, I'm speaking with Emily Maguire. The book we are discussing is Love Objects. It is a it is a gorgeous book full of discovery as the cover is. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Oh, it was a real pleasure. Thank you very much. That's it for this great conversation with Emily Maguire. Emily's new novel, Love Objects, is out now from Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I pay my respects to the traditional owners and their ongoing connection to the land. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. 
Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2 SER. Subscribe in your podcast app, wherever you're listening right now. Means there's a new great conversation, sometimes more, every week. Shout out to my cat, Winnie, who has been marching back and forth in front of the microphone as we've been recording today. Winnie uh, is an invaluable producer on the show, and her fluffy little tail is always uh, greeting us on the microphone. I am Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, wish you happy reading. Bye now.